Church, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Genesis chapter 45 this morning. We are, in fact, winding down our study, going through God's Word uh, in the book of Genesis. We only have five and a half more chapters to go, but um, as I've mapped it out, that's probably going to take us through the end of the year, about six or seven more weeks, depending on how much we cover each Sunday. Now, as far as the action in the narrative goes, we're almost done. We're almost done. The tension in the story came to a climax last week as we covered the first half of chapter 45 where where Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. And we have that tender scene there in chapter 45 where Joseph and his brothers are reconciled and they embrace one another. And then he tells them to go back and get dad and everyone else and bring them back down to Egypt. The only action remaining in this story in Genesis is for Jacob to, in fact, leave Canaan and come back down to Egypt, which is what he'll do in this morning's passage, and then for him to bless his sons and then for him to die. And that's pretty much it. But it's going to take five and a half chapters for us to get there, something on the order of six to seven weeks for us to make our way through that. Now, why do I set this up like that? It sounds like I'm underselling the remainder of the book of Genesis by saying, yeah, but there's not much action yet to be done. But that's not what I'm saying. Instead, what I want us to be reminded of yet again this morning is that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. This is important because now that the tension of this story has been resolved, the action in the story is going to slow down. And I don't want us to miss anything just because the action in the story is over. It would be very easy for me to say, okay, we're just going to cover the last five and a half chapters in one setting, and then we're going to move on to the next sermon series. But I don't want us to fast forward through God's word and miss something of what he has for us in any part of it. I just can't bring myself to do that. And so this morning's text begins in verse 16 of chapter 45, and we're going to go through verse 27 of chapter 46. There are three main sections to our text this morning. The first two are narrative, part of the story. And the second is a genealogical list of those people who left Canaan and entered into Egypt. So the first section is found in verses 16 through 24 of chapter 45 that takes place in Egypt. The brothers are still there. And Pharaoh learns about their presence and and, and finds out that Joseph's brothers are there. And he invites all of Joseph's family to leave Canaan and come to Egypt to survive the famine. The next section, which covers the last few verses of chapter 45 and into chapter 46, uh, take place in Canaan, where Jacob finds out about Joseph, finds out that he's still alive, and uh, begins his journey into Egypt. And then the last section is a list, just a genealogical list of names, and I hope that you'll give me grace as I seek to pronounce each and every one of them. I was going to call on Matt to read that section, but I'll, I'll be gracious this morning. Um, a, a list of names of those who left Egypt and went into Canaan. So let's read God's word beginning in verse 16 of chapter 45, continuing through verse 27 of chapter 46. This is God's word, church. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. 
The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, <clears throat> Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, all all his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sirah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bilah, Becher, Ashbel, Gerah, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, whom who were born to Jacob, 14 persons at all. The sons of Dan, Husham. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, <coughs> Guni, Jezer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons at all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not included Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons in the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this book. And Father, we know and believe through the Apostle Paul that all Scripture is inspired by you. It is your breath. And so, Father, first of all, we thank you that you have preserved it throughout the ages such that we can know without any doubt that what we hold in our hands to be your very words, your breath. And secondly, we ask because of what it is, because it is your breath, because it is true, because we can trust it, we ask that you would speak to us from it. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would give us not just understanding, 
so that we are more knowledgeable about what it says and what it means. But God, we ask that you would change us through it. We, Father, we ask that even through the reading and now the explanation of your word, that simply through that, Father, you would build the faith of your children. And Father, those who may be here or within the sound of my voice, who don't know you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that even in this passage, Father, that you might give us a glimpse of the hope that we have in Christ and lead someone across the line of faith to trust in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So let's look at each of these three sections. The first, verses 16 through 24 in chapter 45, begins with Pharaoh hearing a report that Joseph's brothers are now in country. They've come to Egypt. And this Overhearing on the part of Pharaoh should remind us, it it recalls to us something else that Pharaoh overheard at the beginning of chapter 45 when Joseph finally revealed his identity to his brothers and he began to weep aloud. Verse 3 of chapter 45 says, And he, Joseph, wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Well, now Pharaoh overhears something else. A report that Joseph's brothers are now in country. And we're told by Moses that this news, this report that came to Pharaoh, pleased him. It pleased Pharaoh. Now, take note of that because Egypt and Pharaoh as the ruler of the Egyptians was an enemy of the Israelites. They were an enemy of everyone else in the land. And yet, Pharaoh here was pleased to hear that Joseph's brothers were in country. And so he instructs Joseph to go tell his brothers to go back to Canaan and collect father, collect their dad and all of their family and come to Egypt, come back down to Egypt so that you might survive the famine. And he says to them, he he, he promises that he will give them the best of the land. As we'll find out next week, the land that he intends to give to them is the land of Goshen, the most fertile part of Egypt, the the best land, particularly for agriculture and, and pasturing sheep and goats, which they needed. He promises to give them the best of the land, and, and, and he says, I'll let them eat of the fat of the land. Now remember, they're in the middle of a famine. There is no food that's being grown. There is no harvesting that's taken place. So when he says, I'm going to let them eat of the fat of the land, it doesn't mean I'm going to let them grow stuff and I'm going to let them harvest stuff. No, he is committing to opening the storehouses of the produce of the land that had been stored because of the, the vision that God gave to Joseph that a famine was coming so they were able to store up for seven years. Pharaoh is committing to opening those storehouses for Joseph's family. He goes on to say, bring wagons to them to carry your wives and your little ones and your father. And he tells them, don't worry about bringing the goods from your land, the land of Canaan, because the best of the land of Egypt will belong to you, will be yours. It's incredible. The thing that Moses is highlighting for us in this first section is the hospitality of Pharaoh, the kindness of Pharaoh's heart towards Joseph and his family, his hospitality. He gives them the best land, the best food, and the best things of all of Egypt. Now, I want to make a few points about this. The first is that I think this affirms for us the reality of Joseph's ascending to the position of second most powerful person in all of Egypt. This this displays how grateful Pharaoh is for Joseph. And and, and it's only right for him, it's only fitting for him to want to honor Joseph and his family for Joseph having saved all of Egypt as a result of interpreting his dream and helping them to survive the famine. But secondly, I I believe that the fact that Moses includes this story as Moses is telling the story of the life of Joseph The fact that he includes this story about the hospitality and generosity of Pharaoh, I think, only serves as further proof to the authenticity of Scripture. Think about it. If you were going to make up a story 
about how the Israelites got their start. Why in the world would you ever include a story about how nice Egypt was to you so many years ago? Consider Moses' audience here. Who, Who was his original audience? They were the Hebrews who had just escaped out of where? Out of Egypt, where they had been in bondage for over 400 years. The very last thing that they would want to, want to hear about was how nice Pharaoh had been and how kind the Egyptians had been to them. In fact, that probably would have risked them believing you at all. No, the fact that Moses includes this story here, the only reason why Moses would have included this story here is not to win friends and influence people with the Hebrews. The only reason why he included it here is because it actually happened. And Moses including this story here is yet another piece of an internal evidence in Scripture that proves to us that the Bible is not just a, a, a book of made-up stories. Because I can guarantee you, if it were, this story would not be included in it. Friend, this book is true. And it is reliable. And when it tells us that something happened, it really happened. And we can trust it to tell us truth. Thirdly, and I think somewhat in passing, but I think it's true, that if a pagan here can show hospitality to God's children, then certainly God's children can show hospitality to pagans. Biblical hospitality is making room for guests. That's what hospitality is in the Bible. Making room at our table, making room in our homes, making room in our hearts and our wallets. And that's what Pharaoh is doing here. He's making room for Joseph's family in Egypt. He's being hospitable. And certainly in the New Testament, Jesus commends his followers in Matthew 25 for having given food to those who were hungry and given a drink to those who were thirsty and visiting those who were sick and giving clothing to those who were naked. And he commends them for having done this to the least of these. But fourthly and most importantly, the hospitality that we see in Pharaoh here shows us that God can even use the kindness of our enemies in order to accomplish his sovereign plans for his people. Again, yet again, we're confronted here with the theme of God's sovereignty in the story of the life of Joseph. And now we see that God is even in control of Pharaoh's heart. And by providential action, Pharaoh opens up his country and he opens up his storehouses as a means of provision for God's people. Reminds us of Proverbs 21 verse 1 where the writer says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. I think it's interesting that in Genesis here, we see God softening Pharaoh's heart in order to be kind to his people. And in the next book, in the book of Genesis, we see God many times hardening Pharaoh's heart in order to be harsh to his people. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Moses here was reminding the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness hundreds of years later. He was reminding them that though there may be giants in the land, in that promised land that is ahead of them, God can even use God's people's enemies to bless or to curse as a means of accomplishing his plan. So what does that mean for God's people today? Well, it it means for one, don't be afraid of earthly enemies because they are only streams of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns them wherever he wills. Trust the Lord, follow the Lord, be obedient to the Lord, and you will see him use miraculous means in order to accomplish his plans for his people. God's plans for Jacob's family in this time, 
God's plans included not just them surviving the next five years of famine. God's plans were that he would build them into a mighty nation. That was, that was God's plans for Jacob's family. And so in this instance, he determined to use Pharaoh, traditionally an enemy of God's people, both in Joseph's day and in Moses' day, God determined to use Pharaoh's hospitality as a means of accomplishing those plans for Jacob's family. So the question for us is, what is God's plan for us? What is God's plan for you? Well, I can't tell you the specifics, I'm sad to say. I can't reveal to you the the particulars of his will and his plan for your life. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're one of his by faith, then his plans for you and for your life include at least three things. First of all, his plans include bringing himself glory through your life. God intends to glorify himself, to display the magnificence of his holiness and majesty in and through your life. That's number one. Number two, he intends to conform you to the image of his son Jesus. He he intends to, to transform you day by day, more and more, to look like his son Jesus Christ. And parenthetically, His goal and his motivation in accomplishing plan number two there usually is for the purpose of also accomplishing plan number one, to glorify himself through your life. And then thirdly, if you're one of his by faith, his plan for you intends to persevere you to the end. That if you are his through faith, through genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that you will be his at the end that you will not finally fall away. We're reminded of Paul's words to the church in Rome when he says that uh, however many he called, uh, or excuse me, however many he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. None is lost. If you're his by faith, he's going to see that you persevere to the end. That's what God intends for your life to see you persevere in faith to the end. That is God's plan for you if you belong to him. And as we've seen already in the story of the life of Joseph, sometimes God uses suffering and hard times in order as a means to accomplish those ends. But sometimes God can also use the heart of an enemy. And in so doing, he can even change the heart of an enemy to make him kind and generous and hospitable instead of mean and demanding and cruel in order to accomplish his plans for you. And when that happens, when he does do that in our lives, may we be careful to give him all the credit for that. I think what we see here is that there is absolutely no means that is outside the reach of God that God can't use as a means of accomplishing his plans for your life and mine. And so the call on us is to keep trusting him, keep holding on to his hand, no matter what, no matter what. There's a secondary lesson in this first section, I think, about sovereign grace. Note in verse 22, when when Joseph is passing out new garments to his brothers, he gives many more to his brother Benjamin. He gives five changes of new clothes to Benjamin, whereas the rest of his brothers only get one. To Benjamin, he gives 300 shekels of silver, and there's no mention of giving any money to the rest of his brothers. And what we should note about that scene is what we don't see. And what we don't see is the jealousy of his brothers. That jealousy that was so on display in their lives back in chapter 37, when it was so clear that Jacob, their father, had singled out Joseph as their favorite, as his favorite, and had given him, and him alone, that coat of many colors. They were at that time blinded by their jealousy. They couldn't see straight because of their jealousy, but now that jealousy is gone. 
The brothers of old would have complained to the nth degree about how unfair this is that Benjamin gets five shirts and they only get one. But we don't see any complaining here. We don't see any jealousy in the brothers. They are a changed lot. Why is that? I believe it's because of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks as God has led them to come to grips with their own depravity. He used a famine to do this. He used prison time to do this. He used the harsh words of Joseph to do this and all the other things that they have experienced in the last couple of chapters. He used all of that. God used all of that as a means of working on their hearts so that they might see their own sin with respect to Joseph and how they treated Joseph so many years earlier. They knew and they were convinced they, they, that they deserved punishment because of how they tr- treated Joseph. And they knew that Joseph had bo- both the, the power and the right to met out that punishment on them. And yet, though they knew that's what they deserved, they knew that what they got, got instead was grace. They deserved punishment, and what they got was provision and salvation from the famine. They knew that Joseph had shown them mercy and, and grace instead of giving them what they deserved. And so now, in chapter 45, when Joseph shows this extravagant kindness and grace to Benjamin, there's no jealousy on their parts. They know that Joseph has the right to show this kindness to Benjamin to one of them and and not to all of them because they're so convinced of the grace that he has shown to them. And church, the same is true for us. When we are convinced of our own depravity, that we are a people of unclean lips, that we are sinful and deserve judgment and punishment forever, that that is what is fair, that is what we deserve. Only when we truly come to grips with that can we truly appreciate the grace that he has shown us in Christ in taking that punishment and putting it on his son Jesus at the cross and giving us instead his righteousness so that when God looks at those who are his by faith, he sees the righteousness of his son Jesus and we are granted entrance into his eternal kingdom. We know and are convinced of that sovereign grace. We are blown away by the undeserved grace of God. And so when God determines to bless someone else, when he sets his sovereign kindness on someone else in a way that he chooses not to with us, then we are not jealous. Instead, we are so thankful that we don't get what we deserve. And instead, we get what we don't deserve, which is grace. Let's move on to the next section, verses uh, 25 of chapter 45. Uh, And this section uh, bridges the gap into chapter 46 uh, down to verse 7. In, In this section, the focus shifts from Pharaoh and Joseph in Egypt to Jacob and his family in Canaan. Israel is also his name here. He's been renamed Israel by God, and we'll see both of those names here. But the focus is on Jacob's faith, and he goes here from, we're going to track his progress. He goes from unbelief to belief to worship to obedience. And we're going to track his progress through, through all of this. And this is all in relation to him accepting the fact that his son Joseph is still alive. This is all in response to him accepting that news and the implications of that news, which means that he now needs to leave Canaan, the land of promise, and go down to Egypt. And so I, I, want, us to, I want us to consider his flow from unbelief to belief to, to worship to obedience. I want us to consider that uh, in reference to times in which we're struggling with God's leading in our own life. Because... We're going to see Jacob very conflicted here. What is it that he should be doing? It's impossible for us to overstate how difficult this must have been for Jacob to leave the land of promise, to leave Canaan. God's promises to his grandfather Abraham, 
His promises to his father Isaac and God's promises even to him all revolved around this land. And back in Genesis chapter 12, if you recall, when Abraham left Canaan because there was a famine in Canaan, remember that? Right after he got called into, the, in, into Canaan. There was a famine in that land and he escaped and he went down to Egypt to escape that famine Abraham was disciplined for that. That, that, was, a scene, that, that was seen as a, a lack of Abraham trusting God in the midst of a hard time. And so how in the world could Jacob know for sure that God was in fact leading him now to leave the land of Canaan and go down to Egypt? So the brothers arrive back in Canaan and they meet with their father Jacob and they tell him about Joseph. Verse 26 They say to him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all of Egypt. Now, Jacob's initial response is unbelief. Look at the second half of verse 26. It says, his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. And, you know, him not believing his son's news about Joseph was for good reason. Because what this meant was that his sons had, in fact, lied about Joseph 22 years ago, when they had brought him his bloodied robe, that they knew that they had dipped in animal's blood, leading him to believe that their son had been killed by a wild animal. This meant that they had lied to him then about Joseph, and if they had lied to him once about Joseph, who's to say they're not lying again? And so he's paralyzed in unbelief here. He was numb in his heart. He's terribly conflicted. His heart wants to believe, but his mind says this is impossible. But then his sons began to tell him more about what Joseph had said to them. And and as Jacob listens to the words of Joseph through through his other sons, he's reminded of God's promises. And what God had promised their family through Joseph's dreams when he was just a a 17-year-old snot-nosed kid back in Canaan. That one day, his whole family would bow down to Joseph, and he would rule over them. These words began to to come back to Jacob as he heard this story and the words of Joseph as they said them to him. And then Jacob was given further evidence when he saw the wagons and the ten donkeys loaded down with food and the ten more donkeys loaded down with all the good things of Egypt. And Jacob recognized their the thumbprint of God's provision. And we're told that this revived his spirit. It says in verse 28 of chapter 45, and Israel said, he's referred to as Israel here because he's acting out of faith, not fear. Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. And I will go and see him before I die. How gracious of God to give Jacob further evidence of his leading And how he was leading him through these wagons and these donkeys and such. Jacob is having a hard time coming to grips here with uh, the news about Joseph. And his brothers are now saying to him, now what this means is that you need to pack up everything, your whole family, and migrate down to Egypt. And Jacob surely doesn't want to do that because, again, all of God's promises revolve around this land. So what does God do for him? He, he provides him with more evidence. He provides him with evidence of his clear leading in his life. Donkeys filled with all the good things of Egypt. Wagons from Egypt. This was more than his sons could have purchased with the money that he had given them to buy food in famine. Clearly, this was provision from God. How kind of God to provide this kind of clear evidence of his leading and how badly do we want that sometimes right when we're struggling with what God's leading is in our life we we want this kind of writing on the wall we want this kind of clear evidence of his leading and and sometimes he provides it and when he does we are as glad as Jacob is when he is when when he has the thought here of being reunited with his son but sometimes God chooses not to give us that clear evidence of his leading. And that's because this journey is one of faith. 
the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But for Jacob, in this, evident, in this instance, the evidence is given, and his unbelief turns into belief. And then the story continues in chapter 46, and his, his belief then morphs into worship. He goes to this place called Beersheba. And Beersheba is noteworthy because this is the very same place where his grandfather Abraham worshipped God after making that treaty with Abimelech. And in fact, it's the same place where his father Isaac built a temple to Yahweh. And perhaps, perhaps Jacob here is offering sacrifices to the Lord in the very same temple that his father had built. And what we need to see here is that it is Jacob's faith that fuels his worship. His faith is fueling his worship here. His worship of God is born out of a genuine belief and trust in God. This was not an empty religious act on his part. It was a display of his trust in God as he prepares to step out of Canaan and trust God that this is his leading as he begins to make his way to Egypt. And God meets with Jacob there in Beersheba and, and speaks with him. Verse 2 says that God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. So he has this theophany where a God appears to him in this vision of the night and speaks to him. And what does God say? God responds to Jacob's worship by giving him greater assurance of his leading. What does he say? What does God say to Jacob to give him greater assurance of his leading? Five things. I don't have them on the screen, but just quickly. First of all, he tells him, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid to go. Don't, don't walk by fear. Walk by faith. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Secondly, he says, for I will make you a great nation there. I will make you a great nation in Egypt. And when Jacob hears these words in this vision, he has to recall his earlier dream when he dreamed at Bethel. Remember that? As he's going off to see his wife, as he's going off to lead the land of Canaan, he's going to go off to Paddan Aram where he's going to spend many, many years in the service of Laban. And as he prepares to go off, he puts his head down on a rock and God appears to him in a dream and he sees this ladder going up and down to heaven and angels ascending and descending. And a part of that dream, God makes promises to him and part of the promises is that Jacob, not only am I going to watch over you, not only am I going to be with you, not only am I going to bring you back to, to this land, but your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. And your offspring will spread abroad to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Now, as we see from chapter 28, Jacob's got a big family. He's got a lot of sons. He's got a whole mess of grandkids. He's got a big family. 66, 70, depending on how you count. But as big as that is, they're not yet a nation. They're not yet like the dust of the earth. They're not yet spread abroad to the north, south, east, and west. And, and God is telling him here in this dream... I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it in Egypt. I'm going to fulfill that promise that I made to you back at Bethel, but I'm going to do it down in Egypt. The third thing that God tells Jacob to give him an assurance of his leading, he says, I will go down there with you. I will go down there with you in Egypt. He promises his presence, and he'll never leave him. You know, God never leads you to a place where he isn't. And God reminds Joseph here, or excuse me, Jacob, God reminds Jacob that he's a God who's not bound by national boundaries. He's not just the God of Canaan. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. And as he goes down into Egypt, he's not leaving him. He will be with him while he's in Egypt. So don't fear. I'll be with you. Fourthly, he promises to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan. Now this is an interesting promise because as we'll see, Jacob ends up dying while he's in Egypt. So how does this promise get fulfilled, get kept? In two ways. The first, after he dies in Egypt, his sons lovingly carry his body back to the land of Canaan to bury him. But secondly, remember that Jacob is renamed Israel. And Israel will not spend forever, eternity in Egypt. And they, in fact, do return to the land of promise. Israel does, in fact, return. And then fifth and lastly, he tells Jacob that 
he will see his son Jacob and his son Jacob, his son Joseph and his son Joseph will close his eyes, which in fact does happen. And so that finally leads to his obedience. In verses 5 through 7, as he sets out from Canaan and journeys south toward Egypt. You know, many times we too struggle with discerning God's will, with trying to struggle with where God is leading us in a particular area of our life. And I think a couple things that we can say from this. One is that apparently God is more concerned with growing our faith than he is in revealing to us the particulars of his leading. Or else he would, right? That's not first on God's list. Sometimes it is for us. We want that writing on the wall. We want God to be clear with us. We want him to show exactly where it is that we're to to walk and where our next step is to be. And God doesn't always give that to us because this is a walk of faith. And so God is more concerned with growing our faith in those times of uncertainty than he is in revealing every single step that he wants us to take. And so like Joseph, like Jacob, we need to believe our way through those times of uncertainty. And we need to worship our way through those times of uncertainty. And God sometimes, through that heart of devotion and worship, he gives us a greater assurance that we are, in fact, on the path that God intends for us. But then finally, finally, we, when he does reveal to us the, with clarity where it is that he wants us to step, then we step. And we act and we obey as Jacob does as he steps out of the land of Canaan and he begins his journey away from that land of promise down to Egypt. This is a momentous occasion that cannot be understated in the history of God's people. This theophany in which God reveals himself to Jacob before he leaves the land of promise is the last time that God will reveal himself to his people in this way until over 430 years later when he does so with Moses through the burning bush. And when he steps out of Canaan, this brings to closure the time of the patriarchs in the land of Canaan. And God's people will not be back for over 430 years. So very momentous. Now the final section that we deal with this morning in the few verses there in chapter 46, Moses gives us this list of Jacob's family who ended up migrating to Egypt. Now there are some irregularities with this list of names here, the Greek Uh, version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, doesn't necessarily match up with the Hebrew version and the Latin version. And if you would like, I would love to spend some time with you individually to go over those irregularities if that's something that floats your boat. But I want us to note here what Moses was doing. Like, why, why did Moses provide this list of names at this particular point in his story, as he's telling the, the story, why does he interject this genealogy? Why does he interject this list of names? I think there's two things that Moses is intending to do with his original audience. Number one, he's providing this list of names as a historical reference point for his audience. You see, every single man, woman, and child that comes out of Egypt, out of bondage in Egypt, 430 years later, every single one of them can trace their lineage back to someone on this list. And so what Moses is doing, he's reminding them of who they are and where they came from. That's what he's doing. He's reminding them of who they are and where they came from. Think about it. All they had ever known was bondage in Egypt. They were born in bondage in Egypt. Their parents were born in bondage in Egypt. Their grandparents were born in bondage in Egypt. That's all they had ever known. Their entire life was slavery and bondage to a taskmaster in Egypt. And Moses was saying here, but that's not who you are. And Egypt is not your home. Christian, may we likewise be reminded that this world is not our home. You see, you and I are born into bondage to sin and death. 
and before the Holy Spirit of God breathes new life into us by faith in Jesus, that's all we ever knew. Sin and death. But when our God saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, both our identity and our destiny changed forever. And though we are still plagued by sin and death in this world, we are likewise reminded that this is not who we are and this is not our home. A promised land waits all those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, just as a promised land awaited the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. And Moses was reminded them by this list of names that he provides of their ancestors. This is who you are, and this is where you came from. The second thing I think that Moses is doing in providing this genealogy list in chapter 46 is he's reminding them of how few they were back then. I think this is the big thing that they would have taken away from this list of names. How few they were back then compared to how many they have become. This list includes 66 names. 70 if you include the grandsons, the sons of Judah who died while they were in Canaan. And the two sons of Joseph who were born in Egypt. But whether the number is 66 or 70, it is a far cry from the millions that end up coming out of Egypt over 430 years later. What happened was that God had kept his promise. He promised to build them into a nation, and he kept that promise. They come out a nation. They went in a family, a large family, but they come out a nation. But church, God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob went far beyond just making their offspring into a great nation. But that through that nation that God was beginning to build in the land of Egypt over the next 400 years, through this people whom he would preserve through famine and through bondage, through this people, he promised that all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, would be blessed. And the blessing of all of the peoples of the earth would be accomplished when God would bring from the tribe of Judah a Savior. He would come the first time as a carpenter and the second time as a king. In his first coming, he lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, and rose victoriously from the grave. And in his second coming, he will rule a new heaven and a new earth, and he will make all things new. He'll make all things new. And Moses would remind us from this passage that this God who promises that is one who keeps his promises. What promises? Well, like the promise from Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What he started in you, the work of faith that he, that he birthed in you, he's going to bring it to completion. You're a work in progress, and he will finish that work. The promise like we have in Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That's a promise. That because the punishment was laid on Christ on our behalf through faith, that punishment will not be ours. There will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So are you in him? He's a keeper of promises, like the promise that Paul gave us at the end of Romans chapter 8, when he said, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to come, nor things past, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from that. He's one who keeps his promises like Jesus himself promised in John chapter 14 when he says, in my Father's house there are many rooms, many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am, you may be also. He's a keeper of promises like Jesus promised in John chapter 11 when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And, and so Moses says to us through the scriptures, see, he keeps his promises, all of them. And so trust him. Don't let go of his hand. Even in those times of uncertainty, even in the times of suffering, don't let go because he's using all of that as his sovereign means to accomplish his sovereign plans and keep and fulfill all of these promises that he's made to his people. Let's pray. As we close our time in prayer, reflecting on our own life, asking the Lord to bring application to our lives, we're reminded that these promises, these grand and glorious promises of what God will do for his people, that these promises are only for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And friend, my question for you is, that does that describe you? Are you playing church? Are you trying to make yourself acceptable to God? Are you on some kind of self-improvement plan in order to appease God's wrath against your sin? Friend, the, the news of Scripture says that those attempts are folly. You can never do enough good to outweigh your sin. You can never, by your own doing, remove the stain of unrighteousness that plagues all of mankind. Your only hope and mine is to throw ourselves at the mercy of the cross, to believe, to trust, to put all of our faith, not in religion, not in church, not in the words of man, not in our own good works, not in our ability to try to not do bad things, but to place 100% of our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if that is the desire of your heart this morning, then it is the Spirit of God that is breathing faith into you at this moment. Will you trust in Christ alone to rescue you from what you deserve? If so, then these promises are yours. He has begun a good work in you, and he will complete it. He's gone to prepare a place for you, and he'll bring you there. And though you may die, yet you shall live because of Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your precious, precious word. And as we walk away from this portion of this text, Father, may we, by your spirit in us, by your grace and for your glory, may you keep us in a place where we are trusting you even if the future is not mapped out for us fully, that we take your hand in ours and we walk with you by faith. We trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.